The scripture reading today is Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may, not, may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Thank you, Patty. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open up to uh, Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30. And I know you guys are used to seeing me up here with a jacket, but it'd be hot. So we're doing a shirt with sleeves rolled up. I hope I don't offend anybody. For those just joining us, we're nearing the end of our series, A Summer in the Psalms. And as we look at Psalm 30 this morning, I'm reminded of what John Calvin says of this book. He called it the anatomy of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here. And the dominant emotion of Psalm 30 this morning that we're going to be looking at is that of joy. As David shares his intimate personal account of God's deliverance from a particular sickness, but as he does, he gives words to all God's people that have been delivered and so have reason for joy this morning, even despite the sin and the suffering that are still ever-present with us. So if you would, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, you have done more for us than we could possibly imagine. Lord, and I am so aware this morning of the weakness of my words. Lord, my inability to place within the hearts of your saints a spiritual recognition of the greatness and the grandeur of the salvation that they have been granted in Christ. And so I pray that you would do what I cannot do, which is give them spiritual sight to see the glory of what God has done for them in Christ in order that their praise may be unending, Father, to the glory of Jesus, and Lord, for their good and their joy. And we ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to, to sit down with a young woman and her mother, and she asked just a fantastic question. She asked the question, 
Does God command me to have joy? Or I think specifically the way she said it is this. Is joy a command? In other words, is joy something that God wants from me and for me? Does God care about my joy? Well, we can certainly all agree, hopefully, that joy is a good thing, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be joyful? Anybody in the room? Of course, no one. We all want to be joyful. Not only that, we want to be around those people who are joyful. And we know at some level it's a good thing because, hey, it's a, a fruit of the Spirit, correct? So we know joy is something that we would desire. We know that joy is something that is good. But to the question of whether or not joy is something that God wants for me, the answer is a clear and resounding yes. God wants your joy. Even more than that, he commands your joy. Paul will write again and again from prison, no less, telling the Christians in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always. But here's the trouble. If we're honest, we find that command simply unattainable. We say, yes, God, we know that this is something you want for us. We know that this is something you desire for us. We know this is something you command from us. And yet it seems unattainable. So we subtly, we don't say it out loud, but we subtly shift the command. So what God must mean is he wants me to act happy. What God wants me to do is put on a joyful facade. So I will look act and pretend that I am joyful. But if that's you this morning, and if you have suddenly fallen into that trap, that that must be what God demands, let me just encourage you this morning that that is not what the scriptures call us to, merely to look joyful. God doesn't want you to simply look Happy, He wants you to have joy, real and solid and lasting joy in Him. Which brings us to Psalm 30 this morning because in it, as David expresses his joy over his unique and specific deliverance, we begin to see the inner workings of a soul that has great joy in God and His deliverance. And so what it means, I think, to live in the joy of our salvation. And I would add, for those of you sitting here this morning, that this is not a tangential pursuit to your Christian life. The world will tell you that the pursuit of joy and happiness demands and depends upon you shaping your circumstances, which you often cannot control, to a place where it will bring you internal joy, happiness, and peace. But scriptures say something very different. That the secret of real joy is not having God do more for you, but learning to rejoice and drink deeply from the salvation that God has already granted you. And that's what I hope Psalm 30 is going to do for you this morning as David gives us five ways to walk in the joy of our salvation. Y'all hear that? Five. Anybody else's mind blown? Five ways to walk in the joy of your salvation. First thing that you must learn how to do is to grasp the miracle of your salvation. Grasp the miracle of your salvation. 
In 2018, the world held its breath as rescuers risked their lives to save a junior soccer team from a cave in northern Thailand. Anybody remember that? Very dramatic. Everybody was tuned in. The dramatic rescue lasted more than two weeks and actually cost several lives. And during which the team waited helplessly for two weeks, their only hope was that someone outside of the cave would know about their predicament and would come to that cave and rescue them from certain death. Now we can all look at that situation and say, wow, that was a dramatic, specific evidence, a dramatic deliverance. But what many Christians miss is that their situation was more dire and that their deliverance was no less dramatic when Christ saved them from their sins. And so the path to joy begins by rightly grasping what God has already done for you. Let me say this again. The path to Christian joy begins by rightly grasping, rightly understanding, rightly understanding the nature of what God has already done for those who are in Christ. And David's visit, visit, uh, vivid description of his own deliverance begins to shine some light on what God has done for all his children. So he says this. He says, in beginning in verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life and from among those who go down to the pit. Church, first thing I want you to see is how intimately David addresses the Lord. When we use that phrase, O Lord, my God, it's easy for us to think of that in like a stiff, pompous fashion. O Lord, my God. But in Hebrew, it would have sounded something it would have sounded different. He would have been saying, Oh, Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God, you are my God. Of all the different gods, of all the different claims on my affections and, and my trust, Lord, I trust in you. It's an intimate, personal beginning to this cry of praise to the God of his redemption. And then he begins to describe what God has done for them. He says, You have drawn me up. The images of it drawing water from the bottom of the well. Not like, hey, he threw me a line and I saved myself. No, like you were at the bottom of a pit and there was like a bucket that came and scooped you out. You can even think about the Thai rescue in uh, that northern cave. It wasn't as if they were getting out on their own. It wasn't as if they just threw them a lifeline and they crawled out themselves. They had to be rescued from that deep water. And so he begins by describing what God has done for them as you have drawn me up. I think the key thing we need to see here is that you did nothing, God did it all. And then he goes on to say, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. See, David's illness, whatever it was, he saw definitely as terminal. There was no one on earth that could heal he knew that if he was going to walk free from whatever malady this was, whatever sickness was, it was a death sentence apart from the grace of God intervening in his situation. And he says, I cried out to you, God, and you have healed me. 
It was a miracle healing. And then finally he says, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, meaning you have kept me from death. I was on the very cusp of death, but you brought me back. And I think it's interesting, though, that that's clearly what he means to say. It literally means you have brought me back from the dead. He knows that if God had not intervened, he would be dead. And even says quite literally that I was dead and you restored me. In other words... David grasped the miraculous nature of what God had done for him. But I think the question I would ask you this morning is, do you? David knew that he had been miraculously delivered from a sickness. But do you this morning think that what God has done for you is any less? Do you think that when he saved you from sin and death, the way scripture describes it in Ephesians 2 is... Or Paul writes, he says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, and whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Church, you think God did less for you than he did for David. And if you don't understand that he did more for you in his salvation of you by faith in Christ than what he did for David, you are never going to walk in the fullness of your joy in salvation because you don't even rightly understand yet what he has done. And I think for many of us, we have a dimmer view of our own salvation because we have reduced salvation to mere decision. Not a miraculous rescue. Now, does God call us to choose to follow him? Certainly. But the picture throughout Scripture is that if you were saved by God, it was not because you made a decision ultimately, but because God redeemed you. That he came for you. That he enlivened you. That he drew you up. He healed you. He brought back your soul from Sheol. He brought a dead man to life. And church, I can't make you see that. But I can tell you that if you don't understand what God has done for you in the right terms, the reality of the joy of your salvation will always be dim and it will always need something else and something, something more. Because we cannot walk in the fullness of joy that God intends when our salvation is a distant and dim thing. We must learn to drink deeply from the well of our salvation again and again and again, grasping ever more deeply as life goes on what God has done for us in Christ until we can see that the most important thing that has been done for us was done for uh, done to us, was done for us by Christ. You see, I, I want to make one quick connection before we move on to the next point because we got four of these to cover and I know I'm already lingering too long on the first one. But if you aren't progressing in the Christian life, if you are consistently occupied with the wrongs done to you, what everybody else is doing wrong and this is wrong and that is wrong and your soul is metallic 
and you are angry all the time, and you think the problem is everybody else, and yet you are in Christ, let me just tell you that you have made the mistake that Paul, that Peter addresses in 2 Peter 1 when he calls them and says, if you are not progressing in the Christian life, if you're not growing in love for your brothers and sisters, if you're not growing in service to them, if you're not growing in the way you love Jesus, he says, you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. And some of you this morning have forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. God doesn't need to do anything else for you to give you more joy. You need to understand what he's already done. And so the way we do that is we don't move on to just other things, but we in faith look back to the center of our faith, the reality that Christ died on the cross for sinners, unbelieving ones, and we gaze on it and gaze on it in faith and pray that God would grant us the ability to understand the joy that, of what God has fully done for us so that we may walk in the joy that he intends us to walk in. Amen? Amen. So I just want to say this, pursue joy, but don't pursue it by changing your circumstances, but understanding what God has already done for you in Christ. Amen? Now we really got to roll. <laughs> Secondly, we need to remember the joy to come. Next, David moves to call God's people. David moves to, he actually moves from speaking directly to God to speaking all God's people. He says, oh, you his saints, and he calls us to rejoice. Meaning in, this, in his personal deliverance, he sees reason for all God's people to rejoice. In other words, he's not saying, hey, I'm David, so I get special treatment, so I get to rejoice, but the rest of you suckers, you're on your own. He's like, no, the saints of God can all rejoice because the God that rescued me does this for everyone. So he says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. He calls, O you his saints, and he says, sing praises to the Lord. Give thanks to his holy name. See, David is rejoicing, giving thanks, but he's not doing it because the song is exactly that he, like he would love and that, just, that the music moves his emotions to the point where he can sing the words. He's doing it because the reality of what God has already done, and I think in context, he's specifically pointing forward because he knows that the joyful and hopeful reality he has is that all the pain and all the suffering and all the sadness of God's people are not final. They're temporary. There are many sources of sadness in the life of a believer, many pains. There is sickness. There's death. There's betrayal. There is rejection. There's discipline for sin, the displeasure of God as he chastens us. And I think all of these ideas, all of these pains, all of these deep sadnesses that are bound up in the, in the life of a believer in this fallen world are encomp and encompassed in that language, weeping may tarry for the night. See, some of us right now are in a night time. You are suffering, you are struggling, something matters. You have lost people you love. You are dealing with sickness. Something has happened. And the collective sadness of God's people is spoken of and rejected as the weeping that tarries for the night. And the psalmist does not deny this or minimize it. He knows that this world is full of sorrows, but he points forward and reminds us that our reason of to rejoice is rooted in the reality that all suffering and sadness and pain in this world 
is ultimately inconsequential compared to the lifetime of failure, or as he describes, the joy that comes with the morning. He's saying, praise God, O you, his saints, because no matter the pain of this life, it pales in comparison to the joy to come. Some of you need to hear that the pain that you're walking through, the night that you're walking through, is going to pale one day and be considered unworthy to consider when you are walking in the fullness of the joy that God has for you. And you need to hear that this morning. And so he's saying, praise God, O you, his saints. You need to praise him because no matter the pain of this life, it pales in comparison to the joy to come. And his point is that for God's children, no matter how bad it gets, it will not last forever and that the joy to come will eventually drown it out. Because joy comes with the morning. I, I, I like how one Christian author put it. She said that joy is not the absence of darkness. Joy is the confidence that the darkness will lift. And I think we see the same idea picked up in the New Testament, where this idea of suffering is not going to compare to future joy. So you look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, where Paul writes this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, but to the thing, uh, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so one takeaway from this is it is not going to help you to be able to focus merely on the realities that you see. The joy for what is to come is dependent upon faith and trust. And this is not a call to pretend suffering isn't happening or to deny its existence, but to root your joy in something more solid and more steady and more sure, a coming joy. Because though the weeping may tarry for the night, the dawning of joy is coming for everyone who is redeemed of Christ. And it's a joy that will so encompass and outlast the pain of this world that it will swallow it up and even, and even the worst sufferings here and now. But what this does is it demands a forward-looking faith which brings immense comfort in the present. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. But it invariably does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And one day it will. That's our hope. There can be no better news than this. So from looking to the past of what God has done, to the future of what God will do, David next moves and begins to explain why he is in the present predicament that he is in. And that brings us to our third point, beware your subtle pride. So how do we, how do we walk in Christian joy? Beware your subtle pride. You see, he now moves to explain how he ended up in this situation because he sees his sickness and subsequent need of deliverance as the result of God's chastening, his displeasure, his discipline for his subtle pride. As he explains in verse 6, as he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. 
Now, what's interesting about this phrase is that I think most of us spend our entire lives pursuing this. We all spend our entire lives pursuing reaching a point in our career, a point in our life where we can sit in ease and prosperity and say, I'm on the gravy train. Like I have arrived. Everything I have, I want. And yet in that exact moment, David recognizes in his heart the seeds of his destruction. And he says, how could I ever say, I shall never be moved? Because what he's doing is he's making the subtle shift and seeing what he has now as actually coming from him, his strength, his righteousness, instead of a gift of grace. It's just like when Israel was about to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy, Moses again and again says, you're about to enter this promised land. It's going to be full of like good things that you didn't plant, that you didn't earn, that you don't deserve. And what's going to happen is you're going to go into those things and then your heart is going to get puffed up and you're going to say, I have earned all this. I deserve all this. This is all mine. And he says, the moment you do that, you're going to walk away from the Lord. But this delusion quickly evaporates and he begins to see himself in a situation with greater clarity. In verse 7 it says, By your favor, O Lord, you you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. In other words, what this sickness did is it changed his perception. It removes this delusion of strength that he had, this delusion of his own invincibility, his own invulnerability, his own righteousness that he's never going to be moved because he's the man. He says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain man stand strong. I didn't stand strong in my own strength. I didn't stand strong in my own righteousness. You made it stand strong. But the moment you hid your face, the moment you looked away, The moment when he says, hid your face, the idea is that is when God, the light of his blessing and his full countenance shines on his people, they walk in blessedness and every good thing happens, but the moment they turn it, he turns his face, it's like their world crumbles. And this is his idea. He's like, the moment you hid your face, I was dismayed. And in this dismay, which I think in, in context was the sickness, he realizes his desperate need. And church, I just... I want to make this a reminder both of the subtle danger of our pride and that God often uses struggles, trials, disappointments to humble us and bring us to the realization and an awareness of our need of him. You see, we should be wary of looking at trials as merely an attack or something I just need to get through. And you look at them instead as part of what God is intending to do is to be able to bring us to a place to understand our need, to humble our hearts so that we understand how much we need him and that we have a right view of who he is and a right view of ourselves, which is entirely dependent. Because as Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but he knows the haughty from afar. For some of us, I think the, the great enemy to our joy in the Lord is our own pride. When God does something good to us, we deserve it. When things are going well, God, I've obeyed you. Therefore, I get everything I deserve. Or some of us, it's, it's not even that. It's just this complete disregard for God, recognizing that 
every good thing that you have, God has given you. It makes me think of my son did a, um, a, a lemonade stand outside of our neighborhood um, to make money for Legos. Oh, to be a 10-year-old. Um, and... He, he did this lemonade stand, and, and you know, thanks to the generosity of the people in our neighborhood, like, he went gangbusters on it. Like, he did way better than I thought he was going to do. And I'm having this conversation with my son afterwards, and I said, Ty, like, why do you think you did so well? And he was like, people were thirsty. <laughs> it was hot. <laughs> Those were two true facts, right? But the reality was, buddy, I said, like, you need to understand, the Lord blessed you. Like, every dollar that you got came from him. Like, you didn't do this. You didn't earn this. Yeah, you worked hard. You did this. But God blessed you, and you made this money. And I think sometimes we will stand in the goodness of God has provided, and we will walk completely oblivious to the reality that it all came from his hand. And a proud heart cannot look elsewhere for thanks, and cannot look elsewhere to give thanks and so ultimately, it's hard, and it does not walk in the joy of the Lord. And that means that one of the things that we can do to check whether or not we are genuinely joyful and whether we are walking in pride is not necessarily trying to evaluate and say, how joyful am I at this moment? But just ask the question, how thankful are you? For some of us, it would be hard-pressed if someone interacted with us, for us for them to give the impression that they're genuinely and deeply thankful. And you can be like, well, I, I can't be thankful. Look, this, 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 this. And if the biggest thing that has happened to you and the main thing in your life is not what God has done for you in Christ, then there is pride and there's a misunderstanding of the fullness of God's grace. And that brings us to our fourth and fifth point, and we're going to hit these in pretty quick succession. But flowing exactly out of what we just read, David now, after he shows his new mindset that all that he has came from the Lord, the fourth way to live joyfully is learn to live dependently. Learn to live dependently. Because next, David explains how he responded to the clear evidence of God's displeasure. He didn't work harder. He didn't seek help from other places. He went straight to the Lord for help. So in verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cry, and the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And there are two elements to this final cry from David, of, of, cry for mercy. There's a personal and pointed plea for mercy and help from God in verses 8 and 10. He says, to you, O Lord, I cry. And I just want to say for a moment, there's so much faith in this cry. Some of us think that it's unworthy of God or it's faithless to be able to go to God and plead our case, to go to God in desperation and say, I need your help, to go to God and say, to you, O Lord, I cry. Somehow, God doesn't want me to do that. Somehow it's below God. Somehow it's faithless. And in the Psalms, again and again and again, destroy that idea. They want us to see that faith is bringing your great need before the God who has all strength. 
before the goodness of his character. We want to be a people who come early and often to the throne room of God and ask him for all that we need in Christ. But not only does he say, show his faith in what he pleads, there's also content in his plea. He says, what profit will there be in my death? Will the dust praise you? Which is an amazing way to pray, right? Some of us want to pray like this. God, if you don't give me what I want, I'm not going to praise you anymore. David's response is, God, I will praise you if you send me into the grave. But are you going to get glory for that? I will follow you if you lead me into the pit. But will you get glory for that? The important part is that through this, it brought David back to a point of dependency upon God. He was again brought to a place where he recognized his need and went to the Lord for help. You see, church, part of the reason I think many of us tend to lose joy is that we think we really need God to save us and then we're on our own for the rest of the Christian life. I don't think any of you really think that, but I think we live that way dependently. We don't learn to live dependently. We don't understand that the moment God begins to simply turn his way, or turn away his face, we don't realize how desperately needy we are for him. Our soul and our life begin to shrivel. You see, a humble heart is one God will rescue and sustain again and again and again, regardless of the trials that we face. We must learn to live each day with a growing understanding of how much we need him. And let me make one other clear point. Christian maturity, church, is not strong enough where I don't need God as much as I used to two months ago or two years ago or 10 years ago. Christian maturity comes as we understand the depth of our need and we lean into it. Let me say that again. Christian maturity does not come in being saved and then learning to need God less and less as I walk in greater strength. It's learning that your entire life flows from him and beginning to live your life more and more in desperate dependence upon the one who saved you, redeemed you, and sustains you now only by his grace. And the more desperate we become and the more dependently we learn to live on him, the greater joy we're going to have as he continues to sustain us and we see his faithfulness. And that brings us to our fifth and final point. I can't believe we did it. We got through. Welcome. Congratulations to all of you. You made it through. He gives thanks. We need to give thanks for what God has done. See, David finishes by returning to the reality of what God has done and describes the transformation and the trade that has given him this, given in this beautiful language meant to help us see what God has done for us. And how we should thank God for his goodness. So he says in verse 11, You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. <laughs> what happens in these final verses is, in these final verses, David, who has now been chastened by this ordeal, sobered by this sickness that God has healed him of, 
He now returns to revel in the goodness of what God has done. And he says, you turned my mourning into dancing. From being clothed with sackcloth to being clothed with gladness. You see, God is all about making these massive shifts for his people. He takes the guilt of their burden, the guilt of their sin. He takes the burden of their slavery and he exchanges it for the righteousness of Christ and the freedom that the Spirit brings. See, he takes our condemnation and he gives us life and he gives us joy and he gives us acceptance. He takes our death and he gives us life. Church, you do not have one good thing that, the, that your Savior did not grant you. And he has done it all, not because you are righteous, but because Christ took everything that you deserved. The mourning, the sackcloth, the condemnation, the slavery. And he granted to you, through simple faith in his Son, the joy and the life and the peace of the Lord. You didn't do anything. Jesus did it for you. He is the one who made that transition. He is the one that made that shift. And he did not make that shift merely so that you would feel obligated to him, but so that you would be able to walk in the joy and love and peace of the Lord all the days of your life. And that one day, David's final phrase, I give, give thanks to you forever, will not be just David's words, will be, will, the, will be the words for everyone who has been redeemed by the Son. I think it's important that we see deep soul love, deep joy is rooted in our thankfulness to God and what he has done and will do. And so we must learn to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving, a heart that understands and appreciates and is ready to say thank you, God, regularly for all that he has done, but specifically for all that he has done in Christ. And for some of you this morning, I'm speaking of a salvation that you do not yet know, that I'm speaking to those who have been redeemed by God through faith in his Son, that they have repented of their sins and they have trusted that the only way that they're going to walk in the joy of God's delight and his favor is because Christ was crushed for them. And in just a moment, we're going to celebrate that together in the Lord's Supper. But I want to say, if you do not yet, if you have never chosen to follow Christ, and by that I mean put your faith that he is your only hope, I just want to invite you to come up and speak with me after the service because I, I recognize that in a room this size, there are probably some of you who have been in church a lot, but you have never yet tasted the joy of the Lord. And I want to invite you, if you're interested in that, to come speak with me after the service. But for our Christians, I want to finish just by saying this. Yes, you are commanded to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. But I don't want you to hear that as yet an additional burden that you must bear. But by drinking deeply in the good news of what God has done for you in Christ in the deliverance that he has granted you, in the hope that he has given you, in the help he steadily offers, and by responding in thankfulness forever. Because there is a verse that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And church and Christian, your strength in the Christian life is tied to your joy in Jesus. And if you have no joy in Jesus, and the reality that you are saved does not bring you great joy, then you need to run to the cross not anywhere else, and ask God for the grace that you need to walk in the joy of the Lord today.
Because God has already done all that is needed for his people to walk in the joy that he desires for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Father, that you have done more for us than we can possibly imagine. And Lord, we just simply prayed this morning that you would allow us to be able to enjoy that so that we may give you the glory and may we respond with thanksgiving, Father, from the depths of our heart. And we ask all of this in the name of Christ.